We solemnly swear we're up to no good. Hi, I'm Gary Roby. I'm Victoria Laguna. And we're the hosts of Harry Potter Minute, the fan podcast where we overanalyze the Harry Potter movies one magical minute at a time. Join us as we argue about whether or not McGonagall would meow at Dumbledore. She wouldn't. As we ponder just how much Harry's fortune is worth. Just $40. As we guess how much mileage one gets out of an Ollivander wand. 100,000 jinxes. As we detail the ins and outs of Hogwarts Castle. It's only a model. Join us Monday through Friday, only from DuelingGenre.com. Mischief Managed. Dueling Genre. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joe Dorowski. And this week we are discussing Antigone from the play Antigone. And joining us to help with the discussion is Virginia McAllister. Welcome back. Hey, thank you. Returning guests previously on to help us discuss Battlestar Galactica. That's right. Well, today, though, we are not talking about Battlestar Galactica. We are going a little farther back. (laughs) A little further back in history. But equally classic (laughs) and wonderful. (laughs) Okay. Uh, when we had you on to talk about Battlestar Galactica, you requested that we do Antigone sometime. And we said, well, okay, but you have to help us with the discussion because you taught Antigone at, as a, a college, like in a college course, right? I did for 10 years. This was always in the, in the rotation for you? Yep. Yeah. Well, Antigone, listeners, if you're unfamiliar, is a play written by Sophocles somewhere around about 441 BC, which definitely makes this the oldest text we have talked about on the protagonist podcast. I think our previous old mark is probably, what, Jane Austen? That's 18, like 10. But we only did adaptations. So, like, the actual text itself, probably Jane Austen, early 1800s, I think, is our oldest. So we're overshooting that mark considerably. Yes. To get back to Antigone. And this is the story of a sister who wants to bury her brother, but her mean uncle won't let her. That is the brief (laughs) synopsis. And it's just simply one of the greatest things ever written. Full stop. I mean, it's just like, it's so good. Sophocles knew what he was about when it came to writing. It's true about Sophocles. This man had an impressive life, and it was a long life. He lived for 90 years, and he's most known now for the plays that we have that he wrote, which is not very many. He wrote something like 124 plays. Is that right, Virginia? Somewhere in that range. 120s. Yes. We have references to, but we only have seven existing plays of his. Um, and the way theater worked at that time, there would be an annual Dionysian festival and playwrights would enter three tragedies and one Bacchanalian comedy. And then there'd be awards given. And in his 90 years of life, he entered 30 times and he won first prize 24 times. <laughs> those, And then the other six times he got second place. <laughs> wow. So that's a bit of a dynasty, I think, when it comes to writing competitions. I don't know if we have an equivalent, like the same screenwriter wins the Oscar every year for 24 years in a row, basically. (laughs) Um, But uh, Todd, you were throwing out a a second ago that he also had several other roles in his life besides playwright. Yeah, I mean, we're certainly not in my wheelhouse now. I just, uh, before we were... Before we started recording, I confessed that I do not own a Norton anthology of anything, nor have I ever, because uh, I do Spanish literature and not other literatures. Um, but my understanding from reading the introduction is that he was like a general and um, he was an active guy. He had uh, some religious roles as well. Huh? Like I know he housed some 
I like it was. I heard it referred to as like the snake of the god. I don't know <laughs> what I, like what uh, some religious object he was in charge of, and like that's a, what is uh, before playwright or anything. That's what he was honored as when he died was his religious role and his his, his military roles. So a lot going on with with Sophocles. Um, also with Greek fl- uh, theater, this is I think it's just useful to understand. Uh, there there'd be very few actors involved, and they would wear masks. So there's lots of entrances and exits that happen. And it would be the same actor coming on with a different mask. And the mask is what the audience would be like. I think it's stadium seating. And they'd be looking down and these very large, like larger than their face masks is what was denoting what character was on stage, not the actor themselves, really. So there's lots of entrances and exits, but there's always very few characters actually on stage at a time. And it also, um, the way I kind of thought about it, it makes me think of Cheers. If you ever watched the first season of Cheers, in that entire season, they never leave the bar ever. <laughs> um, it's every episode is a bottle episode in the bar and characters leave. And then when they enter, they explain what just happened to them outside mm-hmm. of the bar. That's what happens in a lot of Greek, <laughs> Greek theater. A lot of people entering yeah. and, and, and telling other people what has happened outside of whatever the scene is where, you know, three people max tend to, <laughs> tend to be standing around and talking. Um, and the other thing about, uh, Sophocles, if you are an American high school student, you most likely know him from Oedipus Rex. Um, that, that's probably the go-to text. And Antigone is often grouped as a third of an Oedipal trilogy with Oedipus Rex, Oedipus King of, what's the name of the other Oedipus Aclonus. Aclonus. Uh, and then uh, Antigone. Uh, but this would have been the first one that was written of those three. And also, like... Uh, Antigone is uh, the daughter of Oedipus and we're dealing with her siblings who are the children of Oedipus and, and Jocasta. Uh, but like the exact references of her family don't line up with what we know of Oedipus from these other stories you got. So you kind of have, almost have to think about this. Like if you're seeing adaptations of like X-Men comic books, like you fly in and you say, okay, I know these characters, but this, this version of Wolverine is different than the one I read in the comic books when I was a kid. Uh, mm. but it's still, you know, that's, that's the way I kind of make sense of this trilogy. Cause it's like written by the same guy, but they're all actually like a bit off in, in the details. Cause also in Greek theater, these plays would be performed at this competition and that was it. This was not be like a rotation that would travel around. Um, so the details really didn't matter if he was writing this, you know, 20 years later, he was, he was writing a, a prequel and, and things didn't quite line up. It wouldn't be a big deal. Uh, Virginia, do you have any other trivia that's of note about Sophocles or Antigone? Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure things will come up in the discussion because there's a lot of background, I think, of his life that contributes to the approaches he took to certain things in the play itself. So I think some things will kind of okay. come up as we're discussing the play. All right. Well, before we get into the long summary, listeners, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening to this episode and also thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us on uh, on Patreon, you just go to patreon.com slash protagonist and you can support us for a monthly amount. Uh, so if you say a dollar a month, uh, each month a Patreon, just uh, you give them your credit card, it will take a dollar and send it our way to help support us and keep the lights on at protagonist headquarters, which right now, this very moment is... Uh, producer Andrew's basement, right? Is <laughs> 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 it's protagonist uh, podcast headquarters. Um, and all supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and give monthly updates on our fantasy box office. And all patrons who support us with $5 a month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. And now I'm going to give you a full synopsis of Antigone, which fortunately, this is not the longest... <laughs> 
<laughs> Not long display. No. It's great. Uh, don't get me wrong. Like there's there's a lot of meat on these bones, but there aren't terribly many bones. No. <laughs> uh, so uh, as the play begins, Antigone and her sister is uh, is many is Ismene. that Ismene. Okay, feel free to correct me on any of these pronunciations. It's not Antigon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's not Thebes. It's going to be Thebes, right? Is that? Uh, no, Thebes. Because I've heard both, but I was yeah. listening to a, 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 a podcast discussing it, or it was a, a Great Course Plus talking about this, and they called it Thebes. I was like, oh, that makes sense if it's Antigone, probably, but. Yeah. Okay. Thebes um, is acceptable. Okay. So, when the play begins, Antigone and her sister Ismene, uh, what was it? Ismene. Ismene. There we go. Ismene are outside the city walls of Thebes or Phoebus on a battlefield. Imagine lots of dead bodies are around, but they wouldn't have really been. Uh, their brothers, Polynices and Eteocles. 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 There we go. Were killed in a battle to decide the fate of Thebes. Uh, Teocles was defending the city, Polynices was trying to conquer it, and it's worth noting that all these children are children of Oedipus and are all cursed, <laughs> um, which you will see play out. So Antigone play explains to Ismene that Creon, the king of Thebes, and their uncle, right? Is that the... Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Okay. He's They're... their mother's brother, okay. so Jocasta's brother. Uh, that Creon, the king of Thebes, has allowed... Uh, Eteocles, thank you, <laughs> to be buried, but will not allow Polynices any burial. And this is important because, it, like, in the in this play, it doesn't really get explained in too much detail why burial is so important. But if you've ever read the Iliad and Achilles and his hot-headed ways, you know that burying uh, people in Greek theology is very important because their soul cannot go on to the after uh, to the afterlife if they're not buried. And so Antigone is very worried about her brother. Uh, Polynices' soul. Um, so Antigone uh, is determined to go bury um, her brother, and she tells her plan to her sister, um, but Ismene is not on board with this <laughs> and says, I'm going to I'm gonna back out because this has been forbidden by the king. And Antigone goes out and she spreads some dirt on Polynices and gives him burial rites. Creon finds out about this burial, and he is not pleased. And he orders the sentry to go find out who did it, and the sentry then just marches back with Antigone. Very... Like, I don't know how long this this search was, <laughs> but in playtime, it was not a very, very no. difficult case to crack. I love the century. <laughs> and his, <laughs> the scene with the century, I yeah. think, is fabulous. <laughs> so the century comes back with Antigone, and Antigone says that Creon's order went against the law of God, of the gods, and Creon thinks Ismene must have been in on this, so he orders her captured, and Ismene, um, she comes in and she kind of reads the situation, and she doesn't want to live without her sister or her brothers who are already dead, so she tries to confess that she helped, but Antigone and says she didn't, uh, and then Creon orders them both locked up, and they're going to be put to death. And they get carted away, and then Haman? Mm-hmm. Okay. Haman, Creon's son, uh, comes onto the stage, and Haman is engaged to Antigone. And they argue a lot. Uh, with Creon and Haman argue a bunch. And Haman is saying that the city kind of sides with Antigone, so he probably shouldn't kill her. And Creon is calling Haman unmanly for siding with a woman. And it gets particularly heated when Creon says that he's going to anti- uh, execute Antigone in front of Haman, and then Haman storms off. And Creon decrees that Ismene is going to live, but Antigone is going to be trapped in a cave with no food or water, because that way I haven't killed her. <laughs> I'm not going to execute her <laughs> in case the gods are you know down with that and the pity people of the city. I'm just locking her in a cave with no food or water. Uh, now <laughs> we get to one of my favorite parts of a Greek tragedy, the blind prophet. Always good when a blind prophet shows up. In this case, it is Tiresias. Mm-hmm. And Tiresias comes in and he warns Creon that the gods did not approve of his decree that you couldn't bury Polynices. Um, so Creon is going to lose a son. 
because of this. The gods weren't pleased with one choice. Uh, you're going to lose a son. And it, it seems like Greek gods were, were much more of like an eye for an eye Old Testament style god than the golden rule New Testament god uh, of, <laughs> of Christianity. Uh, so Creon doesn't like Tiresias' uh, message. And so he kicks him out. And then he decides, you know what? I probably should go bury Polynices and go let Antigone go free. But he's too late. Antigone has hanged herself. Hamus, in despair, has killed himself. Then Creon's wife, Eurydice, upset over the death of her son, kills herself. So, like, just everyone dies real fast <laughs> at this point. And, and then Creon except says... Except Creon. Yes, except for him. And he's kind of there. He's like, maybe this is my fault. <laughs> maybe maybe I should rethink some of my decisions. Uh, and then the chorus warns the audience, uh, like the last lines of the play are this warning from the Greek chorus. And I've got a couple translations um, of these, and I want to read those just so you can see how key translation is. Because, obviously, like, this is not just Greek, but ancient Greek text. Um, one translation that I have by R.C. Jeb reads, Wisdom is the supreme part of happiness and reverence towards the gods must be inviolate. God, uh, great words of prideful men are ever punished with great blows and in old age teach the chastened to be wise. Or here's a translation by Elizabeth Wyckoff. Our happiness depends on wisdom all the way. The gods must have their due. Great words by men of pride bring greater blows upon them, so wisdom comes to the old. So there's like the same themes are going on, but it does feel a little different. And uh, but the the most iconic translation comes from um, Fagels. 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 Robert Fagels. And one of you has that text. If you could just read that last uh, um, monologue from the Greek course, you got it. Yeah, I got it. Uh, wisdom is by far the greatest part of joy, and reverence towards the gods must be safeguarded. The mighty words of the proud are paid in full with mighty blows of fate, and at long last those blows will teach us wisdom. i got to say, I think Fagels nailed it best. <laughs> of the, of the There's a reason <laughs> Fagels is the classic. Yeah. yeah. So that is uh, Antigone, uh, or at least, you know, the high points of the plot. Um, there's, there's uh, you know, more monologuing that happens in the actual play. <laughs> uh, but that that's the basic plot, which I think oftentimes when, like, if you've ever, uh, you, you've taught this sometimes, like, students kind of, like, I think there's a guard up about Greek tragedy, like, when you hear it. But once it gets broken down to, like, that level of plot, it's like, okay, I see. I see some of what's going on. So where do we start here? What, uh, well, uh, Professor McAllister, you've, you've <laughs> taught this one multiple times. Uh, what are some of, like, the most interesting entry points for discussion? for you uh, when it comes to Antigone? Um, oh, goodness. So many. Uh, I think the biggest one that we would always talk about is kind of who was in the right, um, mm -hmm. because they both have good arguments, Antigone and Creon. And, you know, Creon's argument that, look, we've just been through this civil war. We've got, you know, we've got to kind of avoid anarchy and we've got to put our city back together and we need unity and we need order and we need rule. We need like a strong ruler. And so he's going to take that up and be the law and say, you know, we've got to have order. We can't have anarchy um, versus Antigone saying, well, there's a higher law. There's the law of the gods and it goes in direct conflict with Creon yeah. and his rule. And so that would always yeah. be kind of the launching point was kind of, Okay, who's who's right? Who's wrong? Why are there good points to both? You know, and how do we get? How do we sort through that? Basically, the first time I read this was in a Western Civ class mm -hmm. um, as an undergrad, and 
the teacher divided us in half and then we had to debate like who was, <laughs> yeah. who was in the right. And I cannot remember for the life of me who I, whose side I was on. And I think we were divided like uh, arbitrarily, not based on who we thought was right, but he just said, you have to defend Creon. You have to defend Antigone. And, um, the debate got pretty heated and I got really, really into it. And I, and I eventually, um, won. I think, uh, and I, but the, the moment Obviously. that I remember, <laughs> the moment that I remember is I had like my little Dover paperback, the little one. And, uh, and I made like my final statement and then I just threw my book in the air and then I sat. <laughs> you don't even remember which I don't remember whose side I was on. <laughs> I think, I think, well, when you said you were having the book, I think your, your statement's defense if you were on Antigone's side would be, look at the title of the play. Yes. <laughs> I think this is saying something about Yeah. Uh, but, but it like, I mean, it really, like, once you get into either of these arguments, they, they're compelling arguments. It's the reason why the book is so good. Yeah. Um, and you can really, anyway, you can yeah. really get into it. Yeah. Um, that great course is plus that I referenced a little earlier. It's called great authors of the Western literary tradition, second edition. And, uh, it's Elizabeth Van Diver is the one who was doing this, this discussion. It's several weeks since I was listening to this and she ran through the a bunch of Greek tragedy, uh, you know, the, the big three for Greek tragedies. Um, but she said, we don't have a lot of surviving Greek tragic, you know, uh, of these plays, but a theme that seems to be present quite often is impossible loyalties where mm. it's, it's not right or wrong. It's which like there are conflicting loyalties. Mm. So loyalty to your King, loyalty to the gods, loyalty to your brother, which one is the right choice. <laughs> um, and, and often in, in our modern, um, you know, storytelling, it's like, well, there's right and wrong. You're making a wrong choice. And, and that's where we get our drama. Um, and this one, it's like the, these conflicting loyalties to right things in their culture mm-hmm. and, and trying to make the choice. And she said, um, Van Diver said, like, that seems to be a common theme that you find in our um, existing or surviving Greek tragedies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, in this, you know, like the ending, it talks about wisdom, but it doesn't necessarily say what was the wisdom you were supposed to gain from this explicitly is kind of, and that, that was the point of these dramas was it was part of a religious festival and it was meant to kind of be a morality play, but it wasn't usually explicit that this is what morality looks like, or this is what it means to be moral. It was, here's a situation and here's a conflict and here's people with different points of view of what's ultimately right or just or that's not totally relativistic though right you know but it was meant to be for the the then the audience members to kind of sit and think and figure out okay which side do i fall on and how does that then guide my life right you know and and what course do i then take based on who i thought was being wise or just or you know things like that so but don't you think that the play comes down i don't think sophocles comes down on the side of antigone in this yeah but that was okay. also Sophocles's. Sophocles came from a religious family right. and a priestly family. And there were also a lot of Athenians that Athens was going very secular mm-hmm. at this point. This was a point in time when they had taken control of kind of the whole Greek isle, you know, area that they had established the Delian League. They had defeated the Persians. Um, and the Delian League was a big deal because they were getting money from everybody and like money is a theme running throughout this. And so you see Athens was kind of going a secular way, but a lot of people were good with that because they right. thought this is what's bringing us power and, you know, kind of putting us in the lead of all the Greeks. Yeah, I read it more as 
look, this is a complicated thing and there are really compelling arguments on both sides. So let's like, let's give Creon some line. Let's let him run with the line for a little bit. We'll let Antigone run for a little bit. But in the end, I mean, when it says uh, wisdom is by far the greatest part of joy and reverence toward the gods must be safeguarded, right? Like it's clear. It's clear to me that Sophocles thought Antigone's right. Like, yes, this is a hard thing. And yes, there are compelling arguments, but you can see Creon just like kind of start to lose it over the course of this as he holds on to this tighter and tighter. And and then we have these, um, these moments where he's like, I am the city. And it's like, wait, what? I thought we were in a democracy. You know, I thought you were supposed to represent the people. And, and he's like completely becoming a tyrant uh, as he's trying to hold on to this thing. And, but we also see Antigone kind of uh, was the moment when she says, if this wasn't my brother, I don't even think I'd have enough guts to do this thing that I'm doing. Yeah. So it's, so she is devoted to the gods, but she's also devoted to her brother. And if it were only her devotion to the gods, it might not have even been strong enough for her to do the thing that needed to be done. Um, so it's a really, it's a hard thing and it weighs on the characters uh, in significant ways. Um, but I don't think that it's, it's like, well, you just think about it and you decide what you want. Like, I, I don't think Sophocles at the end of this says, whatever, whatevs, you know, like, I think he's saying this is a hard thing, but there is a, there is a right choice that, that was to be made here, I think. But he doesn't demonstrate that by like saying, hey, Antigone, you get the happy ending because you made all the right no. choices. Right. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's the issue is Antigone ends up dead. Right. You know, and supposedly she's the protagonist and the main character, but she's also the one that ends up dead. So there's certainly issues with the character. It's not like Creon's getting a happily ever after. He's not getting his happily ever after. And Antigone's going to go be with the gods. I think. Assuming he gives her the right burial. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) He he, he gets petulant about such things. This is so interesting. So I I just finished reading uh, Eliade's um, The Sacred and the Profane, and he talks about burial rites in that book, and it's very interesting. But... uh, he's just a master of symbolism and like taking a symbol where we're like, yeah, sure. We know like death, burial, resurrection, whatever. Um, and then he breaks it down in ways that are really, really interesting. But he, so he talks about um, the divine masculine is the father that's in the heavens and the divine feminine is the earth. Um, and, but that the earth also represents like primordial soup, basically. That, that the creation is is earth that um, that emerges from water and so uh, the earth is in this case like the divine feminine is this earthy thing is similar to water um, and so he's saying that when you die uh, you're buried in the earth because you have to return to that primordial state in order to be reborn and if you're not then you can't like you're not fully dead and so to not bury somebody, it's not just like, well, you know, we don't like you, so we're going to let your bones rot or something like that. It's like, we're not going to allow you to enter into the primordial state from which you can then be reborn. So you're just stuck forever unless you get put in the ground um, or the dirt sprinkled on you or something. So I mean, it, uh, reading that, it made me uh, appreciate more Antigone's desire to do this um, and... Uh, sorry, this is really personal. <laughs> uh, my grandmother right now is, um, she's very old and she's kind of ready to move on uh, to the next stage of her existence. And it's taking a very long time. 
And it's really, really, really hard on her. And the other day she was like, man, I wish they would just take me because, because I just, I want to be there. Um, and, and I was thinking about Antigone as I was, as I was reading this and I was thinking if, if that was what you really believe that somebody that had not been buried was just left in that state for forever of just suffering and agony and saying, I want to be there, but I need somebody's help to get there. Um, and then for somebody to deny that, uh, it's a big deal. It's way more than just like, we're just dissing on you. Yeah. We, we, don't we, gotta, like you. we gotta do, you know, uh, you know, traditional rights. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, like in Greek, you know, the tradition, like, I can't, like, it's a huge plot point of the alien is, <laughs> is burial. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, th- this does seem to be one of their defining, you know, belief systems, mm-hmm. you know, that, um, that it, it's not, Again, like Achilles with his hot headedness, it's not just an insult. It's like, no, I'm I'm damning you right. <laughs> by by preventing your burial. Well, and also for Antigone, it was considered a woman's right. The burial was part of the feminine role, you know. Right. And so she saw this even more than just her brother, because she was the sister. It was her right to bury him you know, and that it was her role. So there's also gender issues. And it was actually something at the time in Athens, they were trying to curtail the lamentation of women. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, that comes into play in this as well is, you know, trying to kind of draw back some of the women's rights and roles in society. So we certainly get into some of the the gender issues and lots of feminists Mm. have looked at this play, you know, for, for the gender roles that were going on and things like that. I guess uh, just as a reference to uh, Greek theater, worth noting, much like Shakespeare, it would have been a man playing Antigone just in a in a mask that was denoting <laughs> uh, that this was a woman. Uh, earlier, like before we started recording, Virginia, we were talking some about our upcoming discussion on Antigone, and you said Antigone um, actually like, deals with so many different points of conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, what were some of the ones that you were identifying? Uh, well, there's gender, of course. I mean, all through there. Um, there's also age, the Creon kind of holding up, especially in his um, discussion with his son, you mm-hmm. know, kind of that he's the older and wiser person versus, um, uh, yeah, you can look at, you know, social status of the way Creon treats the century, you know, or things like that. Um, and then, of course, family versus state versus gods like the where does loyalty lie and Mm -hmm. and there's yeah there's just sort of all sorts of conflicts you can run into all the way through here yeah i I think there's a reason that this text like still gets taught right like it's from 400 bc but we're still like and and not just as like oh this is important because we're going to build on this this is a foundational text and that and better writers later on stood on the shoulders of you know sophocles and and this is like no this is this is a pretty awesome text yeah (laughs) by by itself um and so many of the issues like you said like modern day feminists today dig into this text from four what we said a lot of four forty one ish BC. Yeah. We don't have an exact date for when this one was performed at that at that festival, but that's that's just amazing to me <laughs> that that there's so much there uh, within this. So my favorite connection um, as I was reading this was uh, when Haman is talking to his father, and he says, "Father, I'm your son. You and your wisdom set my bearings for me. I obey you." No marriage could ever mean more to me than you, whatever good direction you may offer. And I wrote right next to it. Diwale, because <laughs> that's the the Bollywood film that we talked about, where 
they were in love with each other, but they were, he said, no, I'm like, blood is more, my relationship with my brother is way more important than my relationship with you, even though I really, really love you. And I'd like to be with you. It's just, Mm -hmm. I'm not going against my family. Uh, and I, so then anyway, there it was the Wally <laughs> making its way into that ticket. Is sincere there or is he just sort of trying to manipulate his dad? That's a really good question. Uh, I had not thought of that, um, possibility, but it's certainly a possibility. It always reads to me like he's kind of trying to play his really? dad. He's trying to kind of kiss up to him at first mm-hmm. and say, you're the wise leader. And then he's sort of bringing in the argument of, but really everybody in the city is saying you probably shouldn't do this. Mm-hmm. And trying to kind of talk him, talk him down, so that he can save the woman he loves. Basically, I feel like this is one of those texts that, um, depending on what performance you go to, you're going to have a very different reading of each oh, character. Yeah. Oh yeah, and yeah. Uh, who is right, um, <laughs> and, and like what what the message is that you're supposed to take it. Because I think there's a there's a lot of narrative flexibility in how an actor or actress could choose to portray certain mm-hmm. lines, and how a director could you know. Could, could nudge the audience to feel a certain thing uh, about about the different characters. Like you could, I could see versions of this that I could stage where Creon's just a straight up supervillain like the whole mm-hmm. way through, um, or versions where it's like it's about like, both these guys have really good points. <laughs> you know, you know, every, every, every everyone in here kind of has a reason for what they're believing that we probably should be be thinking about. Um, and, and in that way, it's, it's um, like we're familiar with doing that with Shakespeare plays. You know mm-hmm. that the staging is so important to um, how you're going to interpret it. But I think definitely this this one, um, depending on how a director and actor choose to portray things, you could you could have a very um, manipulative version of Heyman or a very earnest version of mm-hmm. him. So in this this uh, text that I have has an introduction. I'm guessing written by Fagels, um, and he talks about three or two. Um, early modern um, adaptations of this. Uh, and one is from February, 1944 in Paris. They did it. And it's a loaded time. Uh-huh. To be staging. <laughs> it says uh, occupied by the German army four months before the allied landing is Normandy. Um, the, in this version, Antigone is unmistakably identified with the French resistance movement. And then in 1948, it was done in Switzerland. Uh, but the one that he doesn't mention, which is even earlier. So he says, these were the first real uh, adaptations of Antigone in the 20th century. But he misses, there's a Catalan version of Antigone that was written by um, Espriu, Salvador Espriu. And it was written in 1939, but he couldn't stage it until 1958 because he was living in Franco, Spain. Um, and it uh, it's beautiful. Uh, and clearly... Uh, puts um, Antigone on the side of the, the Catalans, basically mm-hmm. in the post. But that's like the Spanish Civil War ended in 1939, and he wrote it in 1939. He wrote he wrote Antigone as the war was ending, and uh, and just kind of seeing the fallout from that, and seeing this dictator rise up, and then trying to establish some kind of order in this country. Um, and so, anyway, I want to say oh, you missed. You missed the Catalans! <laughs> but Espriu's version is super good. Um, and it's really hard to find it anywhere. But it's very, very good. Uh, so anyway. Yeah, I mean, you can you can do it in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Yeah, and she's certainly been 
affiliated with, yeah, kind of a fight against tyranny. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that that was her. I I don't think she was trying to fight against tyranny. It feels... We've we've talked a lot about the play, and I want to dig more into the character of Antigone. For me, it feels more like um, filial relationship. Like, she's Mm -hmm. defending her brother, not... You know, like you said, fraternal. Uh, d- yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But not defying the king, really, for the sake of defying the king, because she thinks it's an unjust right. order. It's I, I need to go save my brother, mm-hmm. <laughs> my brother's soul. Yeah. So the the one of the lines that strikes me from her is when she says, uh, "Never, I tell you, if I had been the mother of children, or if my husband died, exposed and rotting, I'd never have taken this ordeal upon myself. Never defied our people's will." What lie, you ask, do I satisfy with what I say? A husband dead, there might have been another. A child by another, too, if I had lost the first. But mother and father both lost in the halls of death. No brother could ever spring to light again. So it's she's saying, it's even my... In, in the case of her family, mother, father, brother. <laughs> <laughs> no, what she's saying is... I, no, no, I'm just saying, because like, this is a weird family dynamic. When Ed yeah, is right. Is her, <laughs> her dad. Yeah, but, but, but I think it's a very interesting moment for her of honesty. It's where she says, no, like the gods have decreed this and we need to follow the gods. And in the end, it says the gods must be safeguarded. And that's a really important lesson to learn. But even Antigone says, this is a super hard thing for me to do. And if it had been my husband, I just go get another husband. If it was a child, I just have another child, but I can't have another brother. And so there's something really important in that fraternal relationship that compels me to do this thing, even though it's super, super hard. And uh, so I, and I, I totally agree. I don't see her as like a rebel against the city or even a rebel against tyranny uh, for the sake of rebelling against tyranny. She wants her brother to be able to move on. And she knows that he can't if he doesn't have this right performed. And that's the thing that compels her to do, to do what she feels like needs to be done. And I think that's important because it makes um, like her, her relationship with, with Creon, it's not, antagonistic like we said for the sake of antagonism it's not feeling like he's an unjust ruler like she says i'd follow this order in most other cases yeah. <laughs> it's just i feel a higher loyalty to this one person who happens to be the one that is dead outside the walls yeah and I, i've thought a lot about um the declaration of independence lately um and jefferson saying like really you should not rebel because it's super hard and, and it causes lots and lots of problems. And if you're going to, then you better be really sure about what you're doing and you better be able to lay out the case for it. So I'm going to lay out the case for it now. Um, and I, mean, I think she does a, I think she does a fine job of laying out her case for so her that we rebellion. don't see her as like some uh, petulant, you know, rouser. yeah, that she's just doing this because she's mad at her uncle because he wouldn't let her watch Netflix for another hour or something. <laughs> this, there's more, there's more substance to it than that. But I, I also completely understand why this is one of those plays that would be staged when people are feeling a little rebellious, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> against oppressive forces that are telling them how to live their lives. Well, and she does have a streak of kind of almost want, having a death wish or. Uh, Oh yeah, or, or you know, kind of what, you know, life has been really hard for her over that past, you know, whatever amount of time since everything came out about her there were parents. A few, a few and, skeletons in the family closet yeah. that, that came spilling out. You know, and it, I mean, it kind of feels like she has sort of given up 
the will to live, you know, at that point that life was just kind of too hard and it was easier to go through with this and say, okay, you know, if this means it gets me killed, it gets me killed, you know, and there's a lot of uh, visuals of her kind of being like a bride of death, you know, yeah. in it, it that, you know, being led to the, the cave where she was going to be buried alive. And there's a lot of the language they use is kind of like a bride being mm-hmm. led to her husband, you know, at that point. The, I mean, just this jumping character a bit, but Creon's decision to lock her in that cave with no food and water. So he's not guilty. Um, like it's, it's such a great, like, Oh, it's such, just such a great villain move. Like, yes, I don't want to be guilty, but I'm going to get my way. <laughs> and no one can blame me. Cause this just happened. If she happens to die, who could possibly blame me? Gods. Can you? Uh, <laughs> it seems to be what he's saying, but it's, it's like, he's, he's trying to like wiggle through, like he knows what uh, essentially should be done but I'm going to find a way to get what I want without breaking any of the rules that are around me. It's very, um, we, we just read this Spanish novel. I'm feeling very, I'm feeling very uh, full of Spanish literature today. Uh, we read the Spanish novel called the infatuations and in it, um, there's this woman and she's in love with a guy. And then she finds out that he probably committed a murder. Um, but she really, really likes him. (laughs) (laughs) Who has, there. <laughs> <laughs> really? And uh but she says this interesting thing. She says when you're in a when when a person is in an in a relationship that is unequal, where somebody has power in the relationship, if you're the person that doesn't have power, um really you just have two options. You can either do absolutely nothing and just let the person that has power do whatever they want, do with you what they want until they're done with you and then discard you. Or you can do the very, very, very minimal thing to try to maybe have some influence in the relationship, but it always has to be oblique, right? Like you can never just make a decision. You have to sort of plant a little seed and then maybe it will, it's like use your agency in the very smallest, most minimal way possible. Um, and then just kind of see what happens. And and so there's that angle on it. And then the, and then the other one is the guy that, that maybe committed the murder. The reason why we think maybe committed the murder is because he didn't actually kill a guy. He talked to a guy who talked to another guy who gave a crazy guy a cell phone and then called that guy constantly and planted seeds of uh, like paranoia in him so that he would then go and kill a guy. So then the guy that's the, that's the, the boyfriend, he's like, I didn't kill anybody, you know, <laughs> like I, I, ta- I just talked to a guy and then he talked to a guy who talked to a guy who talked to a guy a bunch of times. And then that guy, he's the killer. And she's like, well, you know, <laughs> I do like you. <laughs> yeah. But it's, but it's totally Creon, right? It's Creon saying, I'm not going to kill you because it's too direct. But if I put you in a cave, I'll give you food and water then I can wash my hands of this. If you die, you die. If you live, you live. But I didn't, I didn't pull the trigger. So, so what do you make of Antigone killing yourself then? What's an, it's, it's a far more agentive act. Yeah. And the withering. Well, yeah, then withering, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> but saying, I, I mean, and I mean, you said earlier, she has a death wish from the beginning. I mean, she's, there's, um, is it Thanatos? Is that the, the death drive? Oh, Thanos? Thanos. 
No, Thanos is the guy in uh, Avengers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thanatos is the Greek god. Right, yeah. the, the Greek god that, yeah, is yeah. involved in the path to Hades, right? Yes. I'm trying to remember, like, yeah, the transition. Yeah, I mean, right? I think she has a, a she, she, there's certainly, um, she's the bride of death. And yeah. There's, there's, it's as though this could also tie into an Avengers 4 discussion, though. <laughs> <laughs> what can't tie into the Avengers That's right. at this yeah. point? Uh, but yeah, I mean, she takes, she's, I'm talking about a character with agency and whose, whose actions move the plot forward. Um, Antigone is agentive. She makes decisions. She moves, she moves the story forward. But do you think it was the right decision? That's the conversation that always gets a little dicey. <laughs> so do you think it was the right decision to kill herself or should she have just waited? Mm-hmm. Essentially being tortured to death. Right. With, well, I mean, if she had waited like an hour, you know, basically, yeah. she would have lived and she could have gotten married. She could right. have had but a But in the moment of you know, so when she knew. There is like an impetuous, you know, kind of rebellious streak yeah. in her yeah. that yeah, like know, shows a- up and, and ends up. It, it, that's her fatal flaw. Sure. You know, and so, and that was part of like. Fatal, the, quite literally. In quite sense. literally. <laughs> you know, and that's part of the idea of this being. A morality play, but you know that everybody has a different fatal flaw, yes. and so every audience member is going to take something different away. You know, they might mm-hmm. identify with what was Creon's flaws. They might identify with what was mm-hmm. Antigone's or mm-hmm. Haman's or Ismene's because they all had different flaws mm-hmm. right. that led to tragedy for them. I, I mean, when we talk about flaws that led to tragedy, I think the gods were a little oblique at times about. <laughs> About what their expectations were. Like, could the prophet have come a day earlier and said, hey, go give him the rights. Yeah. <laughs> this conclusion, it says so much. I think it's been a long time just breaking down these last, like, five lines. The mighty words of the proud are paid in full with mighty blows of fate. And I, I think we see that bear out, right? So we see mighty words of the proud. And I, there's just line after line after line where I think... These are mighty words on the side of both Creon and Antigone and, and also Haman. Haman and the leader and the sentry. I mean, like all of these people are, they're, they're using mighty words. And Sophocles, my goodness, he knew how to coin, uh, turn a phrase. Uh, but all of these mighty words of the proud, they're paid with mighty blows of fate. And we see mighty blows of fate. Just like blow after blow after blow. It comes pretty fast there at the end. It's like, oh, one domino. <laughs> and and the whole family's gone. Sorry, Pion. Right. But then at long last, these blows will teach us wisdom. And so yeah, I mean we see we see these mighty words, we sort of revel in them, and we're able to look at these arguments. And there's a part where um, after uh, Haman and Creon uh, are talking, uh, the leader says, "You both speak sense," and it's true. Like they're very, they're all really smart, eloquent, fairly sensible people uh, who have major flaws <laughs> in their character that lead them to this moment of just absolute destruction in the end. And then we all take a seat back. And if we're wise, um, then we'll take a look at those blows and they should teach us wisdom. We should, uh, even as we can admire uh, or appreciate the situation that Creon's in, where there's been the civil war, we've got to put everything back together. We need some order here. Um, We can appreciate the situation that he's in. We can admire his eloquence and still realize like 
you're overstepping your bounds. <laughs> and we can admire Antigone's uh, dedication to tradition and the gods and her brother. And at the same time say, oh, man, if you had waited an hour, this would have been so Less different. Impulsive. Yeah. Less impulsive. Here. Like maybe you could have just taken a minute when you got in the cave and thought, okay, I've got some time to be here. I'm thinking maybe the best way out is probably just to hang myself, but I'm going to give it some thought, you know? Uh, yeah. The- Learn a little patience while yeah. I'm stuck in this cave. Well, and I mean, that was, that was part of it was like that, you know, where it says, we'll teach us wisdom for each person, you know, watching or reading. Well, what's the wisdom you're getting out of it? What are you taking away? What, what are you going to avoid doing in the future? So you don't share their, you know, whoever it is that you identify with, you don't share their fate. Right. Well, I, but also like we're saying she's impetuous, but that's also like what kicks off all the action and saves her brother's soul. Is like her boldness and her decisiveness. Like, mm-hmm. This is what needs to be done. I'm going to do it. She gets in the cave. Well, I don't want to wither and die, so I'm going to hang myself. Right. That would just needs to be done. I'm going to do it, and she just she just does. And I think that's one thing that um, Greek storytelling seems to be so good at doing is showing that the strengths are also weaknesses, right? That you know that, that like you said, a fatal flaw is something that also drives these characters for so long and we're like rooting for them because of that thing quite often. Mm-hmm. I mean, also like even going back to the Iliad with like Achilles, like he's really hot and sometimes it's really awesome to see him. In his hot <laughs> like, oh, you go Achilles. But yeah. other times it's like, mm, let's rein that in a little. <laughs> rein that back. Uh, and we're going to have a happier ending for everyone because we all see the writing on the wall, Achilles. <laughs> we, we all see where this is going. Um, and I think it's just something that Greek storytelling is so excellent at doing is your strengths are also your weaknesses. Yeah, they're so insightful about human nature. And that's something that I, when I would teach this or any of the Greek, you know, classics, and it was always just human nature has not changed one iota in thousands of years. If you read these, we have not evolved as a species in thousands of years. We are exactly the same as they were. I haven't uh, learned anything, really. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I found when I teach uh, the Greeks, when I have taught the Greeks to my students, and this goes for also just any kind of literature, but for some reason uh, it comes out especially well with the Greeks, is that it seems to me that students are easy. It's easy for students to criticize the what's criticizable in others. Like, oh, that Creon, you know? And uh, I think it's such an important step in this as we study any kind of literature. It's so easy to just look at somebody's flaws and think, I know a lot of people like that. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I know a lot of people that are impetuous like uh, like Antigone or that are authoritative like Creon. Thank goodness I'm not like that, you know? <laughs> but I think it's way harder sometimes. And I can see, I can see the fight in my students as I'm like, really? You don't see any of yourself in uh, Creon or Antigone or Odysseus? Like, oh, that Odysseus, he's just a jerk. And I'm like, you see any of yourself in him? No, I'm not like him at all. I'm like, oh, man, we have missed the whole, the the whole, whole boat. boat. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's really hard. <laughs> but also, like, if you do the pause, like, do you know anyone who is? Oh, yeah, of course. Of my, course. my roommate is a total Odysseus. Yeah, my parents. <laughs> my parents are just like Creon, but I would never be. My ex, totally indignant. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's really hard, really, really hard to 
do like Shakespeare says a measure for measure, like go to your own heart and knock and kind of see who opens and be really just like, um, brutally honest with yourself and say, how am I like Antigone? How am I like Creon? Um, and I think it's really hard and I don't, I don't think any of us are really super good at it all the time, but I can see it's, it's, um, it's like almost comical. And when you're, when you're teaching it, especially a group of students who are not used to engaging with these kinds of texts and to see them just like skirt that at any cost, you know, like, Oh, I don't want, I don't want to talk about that. That's a really hard one. That's <laughs> so important. Yeah. Well, and it could go beyond, I think, just Creon and Antigone. Because uh-huh. you could talk about, you know, Haman or yep. Ismene. Uh-huh. Uh, Ismene with, you know, kind of her wishy-washy. I know that you're... I'm not going to support this... you today. Oh, wait, no, I changed my mind <laughs> yes. and I'm going to support you now. <laughs> that is a really important thing that you're doing. It's also super dangerous <laughs> and I'm not interested. I no part of it. Nope, I changed my mind. I'm I in. was totally on board. And she's like, you're this. out. I'm not dealing with you. You didn't come with me in the beginning. I don't want any part of you now. <laughs> There's a, the other thing that's really interesting to me about this is the idea of fate, right? So, like, you get the blind prophet who comes in and says, this is what's going to happen now. And then Creon immediately is like, I'm going to do everything I can to avoid that. Too late. <laughs> it's, it is coming your way. It makes me think of, um, I, I was listening to a, uh, a novelized version of Macbeth that was read by um, Alan Cumming. With a great Scottish accent, his oh, his real man, Scottish accent is so good. But like the the idea that Macbeth, so much of it is like he hears this prophecy and he's, and he's like, "This prophecy is so impossible, but I'm still going to do everything imaginable to avoid trees marching on me, <laughs> to avoid being slain by a man that was born of a mother. I'm going to do everything I can to avoid that because I mean, there's no way that can happen. I'm going to do everything I can to avoid it, and then you know, act, final act, it all happens. Uh, and you know, Creon, we don't get quite as long a lingering look at a man trying to avoid his fate because it's like, here's the prophecy. All right, go free Antigone. Bam, 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 bam. <laughs> everything that was just prophesied has already happened, and you didn't even know it. While while the prophecy was being given, this was basically happening. Um, but what do we make of this idea of, of fate and how it gets played out in these the lives of these humans? Like we say, there's something so human about these characters. But what about like the inevitability of a fate when the god steps in? You want to take that one? <laughs> <laughs> you look like you had a thought, but um, so if you have a thought, go with it. Well, I just think one of the most fundamental questions of human existence is that of agency or free will, right? Like yeah. how do we even have it? And if we do, how do we exercise it in, in a, in the right way? But it's not something that, I mean, this 2012 Javier Marias novel, the infatuations is all about this woman, uh, trying, struggling with her agency and trying to decide, am I going to do the right thing? Am I going to choose to stay with this guy? Am, am I going to choose to turn him in? Uh, do I even have a choice in anything? Does it even matter? Does anything that I do even matter at all? Um, and these are things that people struggle with every single day. And they're things that Sophocles, 400 years before Christ, is saying, uh, yeah, this is really hard. Because <laughs> it seems like as, as smart as you are and as eloquent as you are and as hard as you try, sometimes... It just seems like your life is on a path and there's just no way to get you off that path. And I think it's really, I think it's one of the most important things that we can think about is to what extent do we have control over our lives? And it, at times it seems like we're, we're gods. Like we can do anything, <laughs> right? Um, but as life goes on, and I think when you're young, especially, I think especially when you're adolescent, 
like there are so many options open to you. You can, there are so many different paths that you can choose. But once you're on one of those paths, you've shut off a bunch of other paths. Yes. Every choice you make, it closes off options. And as you move forward in your life and we're all, I mean, we're all still young, but we're not teenagers anymore. And I think all of us know that there are some things that are just not going to happen anymore for us, that we have set ourselves on a path that will probably take us to a, what are you saying about my dreams? (laughs) (laughs) Space station isn't going to be in my future. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'd love to walk on Mars, but like, I just, I don't know that that's going to happen for me. And, and I think, I I don't know. I, I, I just, I see this theme over and over and over and over again, and story after story after story. And it's, oh, somebody said, um, like all the easy questions were answered a long time ago. All that we're left with are the hard, really hard ones. And this is, I think, one of the really, really hard ones uh, is, does, do we have any power over our own lives or are, there, are these external forces just constantly driving us? And whether those external forces are uh, divine or mundane, I think we'll, we continue to struggle with the same questions. I think fate is another word for consequence. Mm-hmm. And so like for Tiresias saying, this is, this is fate, this is prophecy. But really all he was saying is these are the, going to be the consequences of the choices and the actions that were already taken. And so fate is just basically another word for consequence. It's like an unwinding of the clock. Yeah. Yeah. It was, you've already made certain actions Mm -hmm. and, you know, and people can blame fate, you know, or saying, oh, this, we were just kind of doomed or cursed or fated when really it's just kind of a way of, of avoiding, you know, accepting that these were the consequences of the actions and the choices we made. And therefore there's no growth because if there's no acceptance of the choices you made and you just blame it all on fate or destiny or whatever, there's no room for growth and change. But doesn't it seem like there's a, at the beginning of this, that there is a, I mean, you would think that there would be a choice to be made, right? Like Antigone can choose to go and do the thing or not to go do the burial rites or not do the burial rites. And if there's a prophecy that says, you know, you're all going to die or whatever, if she doesn't go do the burial rites, then she lives. So it, does the does the prophecy um like force her hand i'm also thinking of something like uh, oedipus and i haven't read oedipus for a very long time but doesn't the prophecy come before he makes all the bad decisions as you will kill your father and marry your mother and he's like that's never gonna happen so then he goes and then he makes a bunch of decisions that then lead him on that path it's not that he started making decisions and then they say these decisions are going to lead you down a path it's something is going to happen then he makes a decision that leads him down that path. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? Like, yeah. like the clock, it's like the clock is wound. And then it says, this is how the clock is going to unwind. And then you're, you're like, you're already stuck in it before that even happens. That's different than saying I've made a choice. And then you say, okay, you made that choice. Now I'm going to wind this clock and we're going to see how it unwinds. Yeah. And Edith, the the prophet is at the very beginning and he tells Edith's parents, your son's going to kill your father, marry your mother. Sure. And they send, shepherd to go kill Oedipus. Always do that yourself, guys. That's immoral. <laughs> like, you need someone killed. Snow White, Oedipus. If you need someone killed, you gotta do it yourself, it because is. guess what the shepherd does? He goes and lets someone else raise Oedipus. And then Oedipus gets in a... This gets back to that same theme of not wanting to do the deed yeah. yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's part of it. Yep. Yeah. And then, it, like, it's just a rant, like, when he's a, when he's a petulant adolescent 
uh, you know, our, our young adult Oedipus runs into his dad on the, on the road, like just mm-hmm. walking and they like, his dad says something rude to him and Oedipus like chomps him to a fight and just kills him <laughs> right then and there. Like that's yeah. it. It's just like this chance encounter, chance in Greek tragedy, <laughs> chance yeah. encounter on the road is, is what happens. But now in that case, like the, the, the prophet was like, like the clock is wound before sick. Odysseus is even born. Yeah. And this one, it's, uh, it's I like what you think about this one. It's, it's like near the end, the, yeah, the, the prophet comes in and says, way. you've made some bad choices. God's going to punish you. Yes. And these are going to yeah, be the And in this case, I think your, your interpretation is better. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, the choices were already made. It wasn't like trying to avoid fate, yeah. really. Yeah. And, and like I said, like the, the prophet leaves the stage and then like the sentry comes out and says, eh, dead. she's dead. She hanged herself. Oh, your son killed himself when she hanged herself. By the way, your wife, some bad news. <laughs> <laughs> Man, Korea. I, I think one of the interesting things are, um, about their, we were, we were saying, you know, did she make the right choice? If she had, she had waited a little bit longer. Um, but, and then you said, well, like the play is named after her. She lives on in memory forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I think Creon's words are really interesting towards the end. He says, I don't even exist. I'm no one, nothing. Uh, and then later he says, you know, whatever I touch, whatever I touch goes wrong. Uh, but that, I, that line is kind of haunting. I don't even exist. I'm no one, nothing. Um, and he really kind of is. I mean, well, he gets to live on forever in the play too, but, but it's, it's her story. Um, and that it seems to me that from the little that I know about the Greek, the ancient Greeks, uh, there could be no worse fate than to become nothing, right? Like you would, you would want to live on forever and have a big statue made of you and, uh, and for people to sing songs about you and write poetry about you. The worst thing that could happen is for you to just disappear into nothingness. That's what, that's the thing that happens to Creon. Um, and not the thing that happens to Antigone. So this, uh, the course at the very end, like when it says you're going to learn your wisdom in your Mm -hmm. old age, is that talking to Creon? Like, is it saying Creon, hopefully you've learned. No, I think the chorus is talking to the the audience audience, Mm -hmm. saying saying, in life, you're going to, screw up a lot and God's going to punish you, but you're going to learn. <laughs> no, I think what they're saying is that the mighty words of the proud are paid in full with mighty blows of faith. So we watch, we come to the theater to see the might, to, to hear the mighty words of the proud and to see the mighty blows of fate on them so that we can learn wisdom. Yeah. We don't have to yeah. make the same mistakes that they made. Right. I mean, that was part of that catharsis is you watch this play out mm-hmm. and it's terrible. And, and then you kind of purge yourself vicariously of all the stuff they've gone through and all the mistakes they've made. So you don't then go home and make the same mistakes. Lock some woman up in a cave. At long last, last, those blows will teach us Us wisdom. wisdom, Teach us wisdom, us the core. So they're not talking to Creon saying, they will teach you wisdom, Creon. Mm -hmm. Creon's done. Creon is nothing. Creon has been diminished to a he's a speck yeah. of nothing snaps like by Thanos snapping his fingers yes turning Thanos dust. has snapped his fingers and turned him into dust uh but in Spoiler. watching this <laughs> in watching this we can learn wisdom if if we're willing to do the hard work of trying to recognize ourselves and our flaws in all of these characters and not just see our roommate's flaws. And not just see our roommate. <laughs> and to see the positive things and to, and to, you know, like to try to become the person that we want to be by emulating uh, positive qualities and trying to polish the negative ones 
And one of the great things about uh, theater and storytelling, um, I think theater, uh, theater does this in a special way is to really allow us to see ourselves in somebody that's like right there, uh, right in front of us. Powerful stuff. There's a different immediacy in theater Mm -hmm. versus, you know, film or television Mm -hmm. or, or novels where it's in your head. Yeah. Well, any final thoughts on Antigone? I had one more thought, um, and it's about tradition and it's when Antigone says, um, this is towards the beginning. She talks about the gods, but she, she, she says, um, nor did I think your edict had such force that you, a mere mortal could override the gods, the great unwritten, unshakable traditions. They are alive, not just today or yesterday. They live forever from the first of time. And no one knows when they first saw the light. And she even uh, earlier, she says like, it's not even Zeus who said this, like, this is, this is pre Zeusian <laughs> traditions. This, this is for forever. And when we destroy those traditions, those great eternal unwritten traditions, um, then we need to like buckle up because <laughs> things are going to get really hard. And, uh, um, I was thinking of, uh, Chesterton. There's a great Chesterton quote where he says, before you, before you tear down a fence, you should really try to understand why the fence is there <laughs> before you just go around tearing down all the fences. Um, and, and once you've, once you've really, like really figured out why there's a fence there. And then if you realize, you know, there's a fence here and I know why this fence is here and it shouldn't be here. Then she's just says, go ahead and tear it down, but don't just tear down fences just for the sake of tearing down fences. <laughs> and, uh, and I think Antigone's making uh, a similar, um, appeal here to like humans have been doing things for a very long time. And we've gotten pretty good at some of the stuff that we do. And it doesn't mean that nothing should ever change or that we've always done everything the, the right way because we haven't. And there's, there are tons of things that we should change as humanity because we're certainly not a, a perfected species. Um, but those, like, those traditions that seem to have been going on from forever, uh, maybe we should be a, a bit more humble <laughs> about the way that we approach um, – just like just tearing down the whole structure uh, because, you know, maybe it's there for a reason where benefits us in some way that we didn't really understand. And, and Creon here is, is saying, I have an immediate need and I'm going to do away with this, this tradition that I don't really understand. Obviously he didn't understand it very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it led to like c- catastrophe for him. Um, but and anyway, I thought that was interesting. The great unwritten, unshakable traditions. And I know that I'm thinking about this because I just read that Eliade book though. It's all about these ancient, ancient traditions and beliefs that humans have had for a very long time that are bearing the, uh, the, uh, bear themselves out in, in patent ways in, in religious practice, but also non-religious practice. Like humans just act in religious ways, whether we're religious or not. Uh, we, we, we yearn for these patterns in our lives uh, of meaning that have been around for forever. <laughs> I mean, for as long as anybody has been doing anything. I mean, before people were writing stuff down, they were, the humans were acting in, in certain ways. So, you know, I thought that was interesting. Virginia, any final thoughts on Antigone? I don't know if I can top that. <laughs> no, I, I mean, like I said, I, anytime you can read any of these kind of classical texts and classical works, it just always strikes me how, how relevant they still are today, you know, that there's something about them that they just got human nature mm-hmm. and it just really hasn't changed. It's why Freud based so much of his, you know, theory on Greek works, yeah. because we just, 
we really haven't changed. And there's just something so insightful, you know, from reading these that, and I think kind of based on what you said, Todd, you know, the idea that um, I think sometimes we want to knee jerk to react to problems or situations, but the, there's these underlying traditions and just in, there's like an instinctiveness to part of our human nature that can see us through some of those issues if we don't just knee jerk and, and, you know, react and like, you know, Creon saying, okay, we've had the civil war and I'm going to knee jerk and create all these laws and restrictions and, you know, just to kind of get some order going, but that some of those instinctive aspects of society and family and religion, whatever your belief is, you know, that it can see you through those things, I think in a more, um, tolerant and easy way than just knee jerking and, you know, constantly Mm -hmm. reacting to things. Uh, The character of Antigone stands out to me for um, the things that we love about her in act one or the things that make her commit suicide (laughs) in act three. Like that's the tragedy is like, she's, she's a fascinating character and you just wish, like you said, wait, wait just a little longer before you hang yourself. And like, really like, they're coming to say, never mind. <laughs> We're not going to trap you forever. You're getting released. You can go live your life. You can go marry Haman. Uh, like everything that she yeah. was set up for, that she was risking when she went out to bury her brother was available to her. But yeah. it, but that impulsive brashness that is what sent her out to bury her brother is what makes her say, I'm not going to sit here and just wait to wither away and die um, you know, because my uncle's that moron. <laughs> Do you think the story would have the same staying power? Oh no, it wouldn't. Like I completely understand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, and that's what makes her an interesting character. Is this this kind of two edged sword of one of her most defining traits? Um, is what what made her awesome at the beginning, and what makes you lament her tragedy? Yeah. You know, at the end. But and for so many, so many plays, so many people. That's the difference between the tragedy and a happy ending is just a little bit of time or a little bit of evolution or a little bit of moderation, a little bit of change or a little bit of moderation. And that's the difference between an unhappy ending and a happy ending. And I, I mean, in stories and in life, yeah. I think. And it, um, when I was listening to that great course plus, they said like the, the term tragedy, like didn't mean what we associate with tragic ending. It just kind of grew up because all of the Greek tragedies that won the awards and that we remember ended <laughs> in, these, yeah. in these bad ways. And so then the association became yeah. tragedy is, is bad. Like tragedy was the performance, I, I think. Mm-hmm. Like the root is more about performance, not like necessarily, you know, all of Shakespeare's characters are dead at the end the of a tragedy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, versus everyone's married at the end of a Shakespeare comedy. That's not what they were getting at, but we've like just the natural evolution of language became, oh, tragedies are the bad ones because that's what people remembered from the Greek, you know, mm-hmm. the plays that survived and the ones that were winning awards were the ones where all the bad things were happening. And I think there's something, like you said, there's more staying power. Um, even if it's not like, I'm going to cozy up and read some, some Antigone tonight because I want to, I want to feel good on this winter's night. <laughs> I, I don't think that's, you know, I, I'm looking for, you know, some, some escapist literature. I don't know that you turn to Antigone, but for something that, you know, centuries on is resonant. I, I think it works. This is like 2,600 years, 2,400 years. Yeah, I'm sorry, centuries. I meant millennia. Millennia on. <laughs> still- That's astounding. I mean, in 2,400 years, it will be the year. <laughs> Never do math live, Todd. Never no, do math. it'll be the year 4,400. 
in the year 4,400, we're going to be... We better have visited Mars. You heard it here. (laughs) We're going to be traveling among the stars. Minimum, we better have people on Mars. And and we'll probably still be reading Antigone. It's amazing. It is so amazing that this story... And, and, And... I know there are people that are like down on the canon and like, oh, you know, it's one story is just as good as the next. But like when I read Antigone, I think, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> one story is not just as good as the next. This story is better than most. I mean, yeah. it's just so good. Yeah. I'm fine dropping Thomas Hardy from the canon, but we're keeping it. <laughs> keeping Sophocles and Antigone. Thursday. Yeah, really. Cool. A little bit of Homer. <laughs> yeah, we can keep a little bit of Homer in the mix and a few others. That wraps up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you may want to go check out uh, our previous episode on Till We Have Faces, a great C.S. Lewis uh, adaptation of, of a myth that we really enjoyed that discussion. Or uh, another episode we had for Virginia McAllister on when we talked about Battlestar Galactica, which, spoiler, not the happiest story either. So uh, I, th- I think there's some overlap there. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow Protagonist Pod, Todd K. Mack, Jay Dorowski, and our producer Andrew is at Dizminute. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast we have really good conversations there with our listeners and would love for you to say hello anytime if you would like to support the show financially you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist thank you again for listening and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story so long so long To join us? To help us with our discussion is usually what we say. And, okay. Or, and joining us. Sorry. That, that would be the option for the <laughs> verb of your choice. <laughs> Out in the sun someday. <laughs> okay, let me try that again. <clears throat> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Todd Mack. <laughs> I was... <laughs> I was double checking because I, I, I left out a bit more info section. So I was just double checking my notes for. <clears throat> Go ahead. Let's, let's give him a fresh edit point. <laughs>